Let's make sure we have a great and wonderful meal with our family. And in a way, I guess that is really in keeping with TSP because family and community are very important, as we've been discussing a lot lately. And uh, But this is kind of a fun, kickback, you know, the, a holiday episode of the show. And hopefully everybody will enjoy it today, and hopefully it will add to your Thanksgiving. We got it out on Tuesday this year to make sure you had a full day before Thanksgiving if you wanted to try any of this stuff. Get the ingredients together, get stuff together, whatever it was. I'll have Chef Keith on in just a moment. Before I do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Shocking as it might be, Berkey Water Filtration Systems. Now, why do you need a Berkey? Why do you need a water filtration uh, system at all? Well, yesterday I told you about how you know nursing homes and facilities like that dump tons of drugs and narcotics into our water supply by flushing it down the toilet uh, as a method of disposal. So that would be one reason there. And there's a lot of other things we might want to make sure we get out of our water on a daily basis. We also want a way to make sure our water is safe to drink if there's a crisis. But, okay, fine. We all know there's reasons to do that. We all know Berkey's a great product. Why the Berkey guy? He's, he's the Berkey guy. What are you going to do? Go to the... The non-Berkey guy. Seriously, guys, Jeff is a great guy. He really takes care of the audience. You can find his website at directive21.com, directive21.com. Check him out today. Best way to find Jeff, go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on his banner in the right-hand margin. That's best for all our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number two today, shelfreliance.com. Notice shelfreliance. It says shelf, like something you put things on, not self, like you, yourself, and you. Why? Because Shelf Reliance specializes in innovative food storage solutions that allow you to eat what you store and store what you eat and constantly rotate your canned foods for you. They have some really cool systems to do that. They also have the Thrive brand of long-term storage food, some of the best-tasting long-term storage food I've ever eaten in my life, along with one of the widest selections of interesting things to try, food you'd be happy to eat any day. But you can put it away today, and 25 years from now, it will still be good to eat and provide you food insurance for your future. Check them out today at ShelfReliance.com. Next up, remember to check out TSPGear.com. The new gear shop's open. Hey, we're trying to figure out how many of the Sentinel patches to order. Um, and the more we can uh, sell, the more we can order, the more we can keep in stock. I think they're really cool. Uh, so that why one item you want to check out. I'll do a post on them later this week. But check it out, TSPGear.com. Also check out TSPCopper.com for some really cool copper coins. And consider becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members, and you'll be helping to support the show at about 20 cents an episode. With that, since it's a special show, I want to wrap things quick today, and uh, I'm really happy to invite back to the show once again, longtime listener to the show, uh, active member of the Survival Podcast community, fellow prepper and world-class chef, Chef Keith Snow. Hey, Keith, welcome back to the Survival Podcast, man. 
Thanks for having me, Jack. It's great to be with you. So we have the Super Bowl season of Chefdom coming up, because we've got Thanksgiving, which we're going to talk about today, and then all the holidays that go after that. So it's time to bring you bring you back on again. And uh, we decided this year we're going to talk a little bit about turkey, but we're not going to go too deep into it. We're going to give people kind of the basic overview of how not to scrub the turkey. And if they want to get the more in-depth, full-on Chef Keith, make your turkey perfect, they can refer back to the two seasons before. But let's leave off with that. Let's just kind of talk about the basics of making sure your turkey doesn't come out dry and, and terrible or undercooked and kill you. Sure, yeah, and that's uh, that's always the number one thing. And, and yeah, it, folks, in addition to the couple years of shows that, that I've done with Jack, I just actually finished up about a 45-minute uh, episode that I'll post on the Harvest Eating podcast as well. So if you listen to all three, you should have about everything you need to know. But let's just talk about it quickly. There's some real major things. And, and I guess the first thing is um, – when, when you and I are doing these shows, we're generally aiming at a certain demographic. So I'm going to aim at um, the majority of people. And the majority of people are going to get uh, a frozen turkey with a pop-up thermometer from their supermarket. Um, a small percentage of people are going to get a homegrown or heritage turkey. And things will be a little different from them. And normally what you're seeing is uh, much bigger weights. I'm seeing people email me with 38 and one guy had a 45-pound turkey. Now, it sounds it sounds like it's almost a deer at that point, but let's focus on on uh, the majority of the people that get the you know 12 to 22-pound frozen turkey. Now, there's some critical things. When is this show going to post? Tuesday today? Yeah, we're going to put this right up as soon as we're done, Keith. Okay. So, um, for those of you that have a frozen turkey and that thing is still in the freezer and it's Tuesday, um, we're going to address your concerns immediately. Number one, you have got to get that turkey thawed. You don't do it by putting it out on the counter. What you're going to need to do is put it in the sink in a large container and run some water over it, cold water. Um, If it won't fit, and here comes the Doberman again, Jack, you big pain in the neck. Sit down. (laughs) Sorry. Um, If it won't fit in your sink, and a lot of folks that have a big turkey, you know, they just don't have enough sink to put it in or they don't want to tie up their sink for the amount of hours it's going to take to thaw it out. So the next best thing is to you know go out on your deck or your porch or whatever and get your uh, a clean cooler, take the turkey, leave it in its wrapper that it came from the store in. They're, they're usually tightly. Throw it in the cooler and get your garden hose, fill it up with water, and then just leave the garden hose in there on a very, very small trickle. The idea is that you've got some water coming out of the cooler. And what that does, water is a great... Um, vehicle for for warming things up and also for cooling things down. But you just want to make sure that water is dripping out. That's going to help split her head open. So use some common sense and get that turkey thawed out properly. It needs to be thawed out. That's number one. And uh, once, you, once you're dealing with a thawed out turkey, the next thing is when it comes time to cook it, you want to open it up and make sure that you take the bag of goodies out. And that's uh, that's the internal organs and usually they throw a turkey neck in there. Now, don't throw that stuff out. Reach into the turkey, get the little bag. It usually comes in kind of a paper bag, and then there's a neck in there. Throw all of those goodies into a sauce pot. Put them in a sauce pot. Put in a carrot, a piece of celery, a piece of onion, a bay leaf, maybe a few peppercorns. If you've got some parsley, you can throw that in there. Bring that mixture and put at least a half a gallon of water in there. Put, uh, put it over the stove, on the stove, 
bring it up to a simmer and then turn it down and let that thing simmer for a good long time. What you're going to make is a giblet broth, and that's going to be uh, the start to your gravy. So once you've got that part taken care of, your turkey needs to come out of the refrigerator, assuming it's properly thawed. If it's a fresh turkey, that means it's thawed anyway. But you want that thing to sit out for a good long while. Now, this is where people, they make a mistake. They think the turkey's thawed. They take it out of the refrigerator. It's between 36 to 38 degrees. It's heavy. It's got a lot of thermal mass, and they put it in the oven. It's been out of the you know the refrigerator for 10 minutes, and they put it in the oven. And then what happens is the outside of the turkey is cooked, and the inside is raw. And there is nothing, number one, more dangerous, but number one, more embarrassing. Um, and, and you can picture these gritty old grandmothers and sniveling little mother-in-laws that are you know judging your every move cooking this turkey when you cut into that and it's dripping with blood how embarrassing it will be so you need to let that turkey come up to room temperature and that means it needs to be out for at least two hours you know it wouldn't hurt it to come out for three hours it's not going to rot on the counter so don't um don't panic about that folks remember your house is i don't know 68 degrees turkey's coming out at 37 degrees sitting out for a few hours is not going to um make the thing spoil yeah, you know, I want to say something because a lot of people say, well, as soon as the meat gets to a certain temperature, like it'll go bad. Well, what temperature do you think it was when somebody cut the head off of it and dipped it in scalding water and plucked it? Um, it takes time for meat to degrade. And, and you as a chef, no, you're not with poultry, but, you know, red meat uh, does well with age at the, at the right temperature. Right, that's so, true. Yeah, that, you know, I just want people not to be terrified that if you put your, your turkey on the counter for a few hours, the you know, the uh, apocalypse now of, uh, of bacteria will come and kill you. Yeah, and conversely, I had a gal who uh, gave me a haircut the other day, a younger gal, and she was telling me that, uh, asking if she could take her turkey, well, telling me she takes it out normally and lets it sit on the counter um, to thaw out, and she said for a couple of days. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm surprised you're still here. That's, that's not a good idea. No, a couple that's hours the is no answer. problem, but you don't want to leave it out. Uh, for a couple of days. So you've got a turkey. It's, it's, um, it's thawed. It's brought up to room temperature. The goodies are out of the middle. Now, the key here is, uh, and this is where people get all freaked out. They're worried about recipes. Keith, what, what's your favorite recipe for turkey? And, and now my standard answer is a properly cooked turkey because the rest of it is sort of just window dressing. It's, it's chef talk and chef dumb. And sure, I'll admit I've been guilty of it in the past, trying to make things in an effort to make it interesting, doing things that, you know, help but aren't necessarily, you know, 100% needed. The key is to cook the turkey properly so it's moist, it's golden brown and delicious. And number, uh, and I think you and I may differ on this, but the other thing is, in my opinion, uh, and I've been doing this for over 25 years, never base the turkey. Because when you baste the turkey, and <clears throat> people are doing it every 20 minutes, 25 minutes, you're opening up the oven, you're letting 40 or 50 degrees of hot air go out, then you close up the oven door, now your oven's got to come back up to temperature, and if you look at that on a graph, you've got big swings of temperature, and that is going to give you an unevenly cooked bird. No, we don't disagree on it. You actually told me that about three years ago, and I stopped basting back then. And I never basted with the intention of making the turkey moist, which I think a lot of people do. Right. My thought was always, if I get some oil up on the skin up out of the pan as that fat's coming out, I'll help crisp the skin a little bit more. 
But when I quit doing it, I really got no different result whatsoever. I never did it a lot because what you're saying about open in the oven makes perfect sense. If you're constantly, because you know, when you're trying to cook something, especially in a roasting environment, you're trying to hold that temperature. And if you keep dropping it, you're kind of fighting yourself. Yeah, and that's, uh, and I've seen, you know, sort of semi-scientific things where uh, you look at the oven temperature and it can drop a massive amount by opening up the door. So yeah, I don't, I don't, um, um, I don't baste the turkey at all. Uh, the, the other thing I don't do is stuff the turkey. And, uh, down here where you and I are, it's not stuffing, it's dressing. Up north, it's stuffing. Either way, a, a lot of folks are tempted to, um, put stuffing in the bird and pack that stuff in there. And that does a few things. If the turkey is not properly thawed, if it's not properly brought up to room temperature and it's packed with stuffing, again, you're adding a bunch of probably 37, 40 degree thermal mass to that turkey. It's going to make it even harder to cook evenly from the inside out or from the outside in. So I don't recommend stuffing um, your dressing or your stuffing into the turkey. You can do that on a side. So now that we've got those things covered, the only thing that you need to do is do some basic timing, let's say 12 to 15 minutes a pound, about that time. You don't want your turkey, if you're going to eat it four, you don't want it coming out at quarter to four because you, you've got things to do to it. You've got to finish your gravy. You've got to, and you need those drippings. You've got to get it, you know, if you're going to carve it ahead of time. There's a lot of things that need to happen. Let it come out an hour ahead of time. So common sense is going to tell you if you've got a 20-pound turkey, it takes 12 to 15 minutes a pound if it's properly thawed, properly brought up to room temperature, do the math. You've got a certain number of hours that that thing needs to be in the oven. Some folks, you know, they'll wake up. My neighbor did this a couple of years ago. We we're going to eat at like three. Um, I called her at nine and the turkey was in the oven for 30 minutes already. And I thought, oh, gosh. So you can't put it in too soon. You can't put it in too late. You just got to do some basic sort of common sense. And then the last thing is just um, making sure that you pull it from the oven between 165 and 170. Do not follow what those clowns at the FDA tell you with those little pop-up thermometers because their goal, they don't want anybody getting sick. They don't want anybody having a moist turkey. They want you to have a dry-ass turkey <laughs> that thing for about 190 degrees. Cause they yeah. They yeah, I started throwing those things away after the first year I had you on. And what we've done, we've got the thermometer. We and the bird hits 165. And last year, what I did is I pulled it out there, uh, kind of waiting for the time and the temperature to match on the on the per pound thing because it seemed like it got the temperature a little quicker than it really should have. Um, and I had it in a big roaster pan, and I had a lid that wouldn't cover it, and I didn't cover it when I cooked it. But when I took it out, I threw that lid on it, and we threw a towel over it. It sat for about two hours before we carved it, that was the best damn turkey I ever made. Yeah. Uh, that residual heat, you know, uh, held it, but it didn't, didn't drive any more of the moisture out. That was a fabulous turkey. Yeah, and, and uh, that, that's the, the critical thing. If you wait for that, um, and two years ago, and we usually, we have a lot of meals with our neighbor. We're doing again this year. Two years ago when she did that turkey, when we got over there, we were still a couple hours from eating, and that thermometer had already popped up. When I tried to, and I just told her, I said, listen, you know, uh, I'm a chef, not a magician. So when I go to carve this thing, it's just not going to happen. I mean, when you put the knife through, it just crumbled. It was so dry. I mean, you could douse that thing with gravy and it just, it was like eating cotton balls or something. It was horrible. So you can't worry about that thermometer. Pull it at 165 to 170. And um, what I recommend is when you start your turkey out, cover it up 
with um, heavy-duty foil, put it in the oven, and then if you're taking its temperature every, you know, maybe every hour or if you've got a digital probe, when you're about 40 degrees or so from done, uncover it to allow it to brown. And then when you pull it out of the oven at the temperature we just discussed, again, you want that thing to rest. You're going to have other things to do. The first thing you want to do, get all the gravy or all the drippings out. You want to put those into your um, pot of the goodies that we just talked about. So you want to get that stuff out and then cover your turkey. Really, if you've got a lid that covers it, great. Most people don't. Cover it up with a couple of layers of heavy-duty foil. And for Thanksgiving, go and buy. And this is where I recommend a brand. Reynolds Wrap, in my opinion, works the best. A lot of times you can get it at Sam's Club for cheaper. But cover that thing up really tightly with a couple layers of heavy-duty foil and really seal around the edges of the pot. And then I like to put um, kitchen towels over it. And I'll put four or five kitchen towels draped over the top of it. And that's going to do just what you said. There's still a lot of moisture in there. It's going to hold the heat in and keep it moist and keep it hot. That way it's not screwed up. And with that, I think um, I I covered just about everything. Yeah, I think so. And I think that if you want deeper than that on the turkey, again, Keith, you've got the new episode out. You send me a link as soon as we get done today. I'll make sure it's in the show notes, and I'll also refer people to the prior year. Um, I guess we could do real quick on the gravy. Sure. Yeah. When you've uh, when you've taken the drippings out of uh, your turkey roasting dish, you put them into your pot with your um, goodies and your mirepoix, or your you know vegetables and stuff. What you're going to want to do is what the French call depouer. You're going to want to remove some of the fat, but definitely not all the fat. And, and I've seen people really obsess over this by pouring, you know, those little plastic things. They pour the gravy or in there, and they're getting every last speck of fat off of there. Folks, fat is flavor, man. You want to leave some of that fat in there. Now, I will take a ladle and uh, just carefully skim off a little bit of the fat, and don't throw that stuff out, man. That's It's awesome for you've got a dog, you put a couple of drops of that on their dog food, they're in heaven. But um, take off some of the fat, and then what you want to do uh, is strain that mixture. And remember, you don't want it to boil hard when you're, when you're making the broth. But um, in either case, you want to pour it through a fine mesh strainer, and the resulting liquid is going to be your gravy base. First thing you want to do is once you've strained it out, you've got to taste it for salt and pepper. Most people are going to put a little salt and pepper on the outside of their turkey. A lot of that falls to the bottom of the pan. You put the drippings into the pot, you're going to have some level of seasoning. But you want to taste it and then um, season it up with some salt and pepper. Make sure that it's got a level of seasoning that you like. And then what I do is cut up uh, some fresh sage leaves, and I'll throw those in there. And then, um, you know, you want this thing to be simmering, and then I thicken it up with either a roux, which is 50% flour, 50% butter, or a cornstarch slurry. Same ratios, 50-50, cold water um, when you're making a cornstarch slurry. And then you can slowly whisk some of that stuff in there until it reaches the consistency that you like, and you should be good to go on the gravy. Another thing that you could do, I normally don't do this, but some folks won't have the seasoning right in their gravy, and it'll be bland. If it's too bland and you've got too much volume, you don't want to just keep putting salt, salt, salt because it's mm-hmm. got a real salty taste. If you've got some chicken broth or um, chicken base, like in the uh, store, they've got stuff in jars. Yeah, yeah. Drop a bullion cube in there if you have to, but at some point you've got to back off the salt. One thing we always do with our stuffing is we use chicken broth right. with our stuffing instead of water. Mm-hmm. 
And that's, so there's always a little bit of extra chicken broth around if you want to flavor it up that way. Yeah, that's the perfect thing to do. Definitely don't use water. But, yeah, the chicken broth, that's exactly what I do. But, yeah, so once you do that, you thicken it up. Now you've got um, good gravy. Keep it hot, and you should be good to go there. Good to go, man. I'm glad you brought in sage because that was like the first year you did this. You talked about putting some sage on the turkey. And I know that anything you flavor on a 20-pound bird on thick skin is only going to get so much into the meat, right? right? You flavor the skin a bit. But I'll tell you, folks, I think throwing the sage on the bird is worth it because part of, like, really enjoying your food is really the anticipation. Like, you know, as a chef, presentation is a big thing. But then the the um, the aroma of fresh sage in a in a roasting oven is unbelievable, and it really kind of – brings you to a point where you're really anticipating the meal when you walk into somebody's home and you smell that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, fresh sage <coughs> is uh, best. We have it growing outside, and it was you know, definitely languishing through the, through the summer, but now that we've got those cold, frosty evenings or mornings, it's really started to do well, perfect time for Thanksgiving. But don't panic. If you can't find fresh sage, you can always get what's called rubbed sage, and that's ground-up sage leaves you know, McCormick or one of those places will have it. And that's definitely a fine substitute for fresh in a pinch. But, yeah, you're right. Um, and the last thing I'll offer is I like to carve the turkey myself. I don't like to do it at the table. A lot of people have 10, 12 people there. And for, for one person to be sitting there and carving and all that, uh, it can be intimidating. Um, it can be a mess. What I like to do is I remove the breasts, and they come off in one piece. It's not very difficult. And then I slice them up with a sharp um, slicer in about quarter inch pieces. The skin is intact and it looks beautiful. I put both halves of the breast on the plate. I'll put the legs and definitely a good pile of dark meat. And then I garnish it up with sliced oranges and, um, you know, sprigs of fresh sage on a big platter. You bring that to the table and, you know, the wow factor is, is definitely there. So. I'd say that, too. The other thing with that is, no, up here, it's just my wife, my son, and I this year. But when we were at, back in Texas and we'd have a large table, everybody's come over. Everybody's hungry. Nobody really wants to start eating before everybody eats. If you get a religious family, they're going to say grace. Right. Uh, so now we're waiting one at a time for everybody to get some turkey carved. And dad or mom, whoever's doing the cooking... Is you know waiting to last, and now when you know everybody was wanting seconds, and dad or mom's finally been able to sit down and eat, he's got to get up and start cutting more turkey. So it's just easier to go ahead and do it. I completely agree. Yeah, no, no doubt. And and the weight, man, you're you're usually really hungry. You want to eat, and and the weight can be excruciating. Plus, it's, it tends to be really messy at the table. Um, and, and of course, they yeah. show it in all the commercials where you know the goofy dad will be there with the you know carving turkey, but most people don't know how to carve it. Even the Grinch himself carved the roast beef beast or whatever it was, right? right. And, uh, thing. Yeah, and that's always the thing is, you know, remember the Chevy Chase Christmas Vacation <laughs> where they, they dried the turkey out when the guy cut into it and it exploded like a piece of popcorn? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we just thought you had to avoid that. But what we wanted to do this year that's a little bit different is I, had, I asked you guys over a couple episodes, hey, send me questions for Keith that are a little out of the ordinary for Thanksgiving or things that you're wanting to include in your table, and we'll see what we can come up with by bouncing them off a world-class chef. So we got a lot of people out there, Keith, that got into gardening heavy in the past few years with this show, and a lot of them started growing interesting things that we don't see all the time. So everybody likes potatoes, but like turnips and parsnips and other root vegetables – 
especially in certain parts of the country, they find out they grow great. And now they got all this stuff, and they're thinking, boy, wouldn't it be great to include some of this with my Thanksgiving meal? But I want Uncle Sam, who's coming over, who's never eaten a turnip or a parsnip in his life, to actually, you know, eat it with an open mind and enjoy it. And I want to make it a good experience for him. And I don't really know what to do with this damn big purple globe. So, got any ideas for some stuff like that? Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, some of those, those uh, other sort of alternate root vegetables can be really, really delicious. And they're they're earthy, and they've got what I would call that grandma appeal. Like my mom, she's in town for Thanksgiving. She's 85 this year. And still very healthy. And when she, like, for instance, cooks a soup, she'll put um, rutabaga or uh, turnip in it. And that gives it just, you know, that kind of wow factor that people don't really know what it's from. And it's from these different root vegetables like turnips and parsnips. But you can do a lot with those. And and I'll always have, you know, straight up uh, mashed potatoes. This year we've got a big crop of um, gold potatoes out of our – actually, we did row crops. So we've got hundreds of pounds. But we'll do – some mashed potatoes, but also like if you take uh, rutabagas or turnips, and this is a term where it's kind of like yams and sweet potatoes. Yeah, there's differences. People get confused, and definitely these kind of dopey young clerks in the store, they don't know a rutabaga from a banana, most of them. So there, there's definitely a difference. And um, if you're talking about, let's just say we're going to make some uh, mashed uh, rutabagas or, or turnips. You want to look for the ones that are kind of brown or golden in color. You definitely want to avoid the purple and white ones because those are more uh, radish-like and those have a certain spice, kind of a, a horseradish sort of um, uh, type profile. And that is not going to be uh, terrific mixed with butter, having that kind of spicy radish type flavor. So look for the, if we're going to work on turnips, look for turnips that are the golden or brown color. And they're going to be they got a ton of wax on them, and I'll just give a little note. When you're working with those things, they're hard. I mean, these things, that's why they last so long, and they're great things to grow and store for preppers. Um, but you have to be real careful with the knife, because once you sink your knife in there, it ain't moving. I mean, it's going to follow whatever angle you started it on. It's going to go until it's done. So be careful when you carve or peel those things. But once you have, let's just say you're going to do some turnips. These things are amazing. Um, roasted so you take your turnips, um, peel them, or rutabagas, whatever these people are going to call them. Look for the brown ones. You peel them, dice them up into you know two-inch chunks, toss them in a bowl, little olive oil, little salt, little pepper, little minced up sage or rosemary. Put them in a hot oven, and this is this step can be done ahead of time. Now remember, Thanksgiving is all about timing, a lot of stress. Um, so if you can do something ahead of time, great. You could do this on Wednesday, roast off your um, these rutabagas or turnips in the oven until they're fork tender. Once they're fork tender, um, what you'll want to do to them is treat them similarly to mashed potatoes. Butter, hot cream, salt, pepper, garlic, clove, and then uh, either run them through, you know, you can put them in a, in a bowl with a, with a hand blender. You could use a masher, food processor, whatever. Um, just make sure that Whatever liquid you add to them, and then if you make them the day ahead of time, make sure that you pop them in a steamer um, or even, God God forbid, the microwave. You want those things to be hot. So when you're adding um, your fat, which is generally going to be butter, cream, milk, whatever, to the, to the vegetable itself, make sure both components are hot. Mash it up. Season it well. That is an awesome thing because when you roast those things ahead of time with a little salt, a little rosemary or sage, 
They get sugary and caramely and sweet, a little bit of butter and cream added to that, a little salt and pepper, uh, interesting texture, uh, very distinct flavor, and just an awesome side dish. So that's what I would recommend with turnips. Uh, parsnips, um, those are the kind of funny-looking white carrots. Now, sometimes people uh, make the mistake and they think parsnips uh, are daikon radish. You have to make sure that you're getting the right thing. Now, parsnips are, you know, a lot of folks will refer to them as white carrots. And they, they're carrot-like, but they're also uh, very distinct. Now, parsnip puree is wonderful. Um, you can take parsnips, and these are eaten a lot over in France. You can mix them with cauliflower, and you could do the same thing. You could roast both of these components together, or you could steam these components together, and they make a mash out of them. You also can use about 50% potatoes and then the rest parsnips. Um, but parsnips themselves are wonderful. And again, it's very simple to make these things taste good. They've got to have some fat. I would say in most cases, a little bit of butter. Herbage is good, like some minced chives. Good salt, which is kosher salt, not iodized salt. Kosher salt, sea salt, gray salt, something like that. Leave the iodized salt in the pantry for canning. But a um, little bit of salt, fresh ground pepper, some good butter. Um, mash those things up, and there's an amazing way to use uh, parsnips. Those are terrific root vegetables. Another thing that people don't use a lot, and here in North Carolina, we're the number one producing state for uh, sweet potatoes. Uh, sweet potatoes are really great on the Thanksgiving table, very traditional. And uh, you can do two things with them. You can kind of treat them like I, like I just talked about with the other things. You can peel them, dice them, and roast them. Uh, or what I like to do is peel them, dice them, steam them, and then season them up with lime juice, butter, salt, pepper, and honey. Now, this is something that, you know, number one, the lime juice throws people for a loop. They're like, lime juice? But this is an amazing way to do sweet potatoes. They just have uh, a really great flavor like that. Incidentally, uh, when I was uh, the chef up at uh, the ski resort, we had a we had developed a sort of a Mexican inspired place, and we had some uh, burritos, and they they were uh, it was jerk chicken, black beans, goat cheese, and then we had this uh, that sweet potato puree with the with the honey lime butter. And you want to talk about a big hit, man? It seemed like that was the only thing we were making. Everybody wanted that jerk chicken burrito with those um, sweet potatoes in there. So it's a versatile dish, but it's wonderful. The butter and the lime really play off a little sweetness from the just a delicious side dish. Another way that you can do sweet potatoes um, is to roast them or bake them. And you do it just like you would bake a potato. And then what you want to do is make a little like a, what do I call it, kind of like a compote or a compound butter, essentially. You take some butter, and if you ever see you know, whipped butter in the store, that might be a good thing for folks to get. Granted, you're going to get ripped off because what they're whipping into it is a bunch of air. So <laughs> cost way more expensive, you know, ounce for ounce than regular stick butter. But it is really easy to work with in this scenario. So I wouldn't fault you for for buying it. For some reason, my older brother, you'll never find butter in his refrigerator. It's always uh, it's always the uh, the whipped butter. And the the thing is, is this time of year, and I've heard some folks call in to your show about butter bells, you know, keeping butter on the counter. And, and um, you, you gave them a great answer. We keep our butter on the counter. It's never gone bad. But 
No, and if if nothing else, folks, if you're going to be serving warm bread or rolls with your stuff and you want to put real butter on the table, at least just put it out like a few hours before. If you if you if you won't believe us, give it a few hours because I hate. And I, first, I won't use margarine. I refuse. I, I ugh. And then when you try to take cold butter and put it on a nice, fresh, soft piece of bread, and it just tears it. I, I don't know why people are so paranoid. I guess it's the FDA food police again, but definitely leave it out. Oh, it does not go bad. In fact, this time of year, uh, in, in our drafty old farmhouse, it's it's not hard, but it's definitely firm. So it's it's going to be fine. But either way, the point is, let's make a, a little compound butter. And that's again where these uh, chefs want to, you know, they want everyone to be impressed with them, and they whip out the term compound butter, and, oh, I don't know how to make that. Compound butter is nothing but softened butter and other stuff. Now, for this roasted sweet potato, we're going to make a compound butter, and uh, what I love to do is take the butter and then take um, sage, fresh sage in this in this case, minced up fresh sage. And remember, sage leaves, they're, they're pretty... Uh, Sit down, you big pain in the neck. This Doberman is driving me nuts, Jack. That's all right, man. We got real world podcasting, folks. Um, sage, sage leaves—they're not fun to chew on. You know, it's kind of like chewing on rosemary sprigs. So you want these things to be minced up pretty fine. So you're going to put, let's say, two sticks are the equivalent. Uh, uh, let's say you make uh, this compound butter—at least two sticks of butter, softened to room temperature, not melted. Don't put it in the microwave because once it's melted, the whole thing is screwed up. You'll have to let it get refrigerator hard again and then softened uh, to room temperature. So you want the butter room temperature. Put it in a bowl. Then you're going to take minced fresh sage. Put that in there. Then you're going to take about two tablespoons of real Vermont maple syrup. And like Jack just said, margarine is not butter. It's crap. Log cabin or other weird fake syrup that is not syrup. So do not don't make this dish with log cabin and then tell me it doesn't taste <laughs> or, or Canadian maple syrup. One yeah. So you put in a little bit of that. So now you've got butter, fresh sage. Are you done now? Salt and pepper and a little bit of maple syrup. Whip this mixture together with a fork, a whisk, whatever you need to do. And then um, take, you'll have Virginia peanuts, and these are kind of special. If you've ever seen uh, Virginia peanuts, they tend to be a little bigger. You know, they're the quote-unquote gourmet peanuts. Um, you don't want to use planters, you know, hammered salted nuts that they sell. Those things have, I mean, it's 99% salt and 1% peanuts. That's not going to do it. If you're going to do this, you want to either use like, um, real Virginia peanuts, and they're going to cost you. You can get them in most supermarkets. It's going to cost you 10, 15 bucks for a little tin of them, but they're really great. If you can't find those, I would go with some uh, pecans. And you'll take either the nuts or the pecans, throw them in a little skillet with just a little bit of butter, and um, just start to warm them up until they want to just start to go a little bit brown. And, and again, this is not a diet dish. This is a holiday dish. It needs to be loaded with flavor. You cut open that sweet potato. You put some of that compound butter in there. And then you put, you know, a spoonful of either the uh, pecans or those gourmet Virginia peanuts <clears throat> over it. And I got to tell you, you, you've got a meal in itself. And that is really an incredible way to serve a sweet potato. Because when you dig in there, 
you've got that sweet orange flesh, and then you're going to have that little hint of maple syrup, the richness from the butter, the earthiness from the sage. It is remarkable. And if you want to, uh, if you don't love sage, thyme would be, fresh thyme would be your alternative. But that is a spectacular dish. And, uh, you know, you can get creative with that and use mascarpone cheese, or you, you could put in um, a little bit of cream cheese with the butter or sour cream. It doesn't really matter. But the point is, um, flavorful fats with herbs, a little sweetness, some nuts on a sweet potato. It is out of this world. That sounds awesome, man. Uh, As always, you make everybody hungry uh, when you're when you're on the air here with us. I'll have to put a disclaimer in the introduction to make sure people uh, are aware of what's going to happen today. Uh, you've eaten before you listen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Please have a snack in hand when listening to Chef Keats. No, that that's awesome stuff, man. Um, we had some kind of weird stuff come in too. I'm not weird, just not what you think of. Somebody asked about cooking with ostrich eggs. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and uh, of course I've seen ostrich eggs, and um, they've been cooked in restaurants where I worked, but I don't have a lot of experience cooking with ostrich eggs, and uh, I guess my biggest, I don't want to say fear or worry, but I don't, uh, I just don't see, other than maybe having those as, uh, you know, deviled, like a deviled egg, a deviled ostrich egg, maybe as an appetizer, potentially before Thanksgiving, I really can't, I'm not really feeling the love on, on including that on Thanksgiving Day. So, uh, while I wanted to address that gentleman's question, um, you know, I also want to be honest and I want to give him a bunch of BS and tell him <laughs> a recipe that I've never cooked and say, this is terrific. So, you know, uh, ostriches are cool. I wouldn't want one to bite me, but I also, I don't have any ostrich eggs in my refrigerator. Okay. Fair enough. Um, let's see. What else do we have? Um, Thoughts on uh, desserts and appetizers? Now, that's where it gets uh, pretty interesting. And, and uh, I have to say that when it, like this year with, with the holidays, we're going to have 15 people, actually 16 people eating. And uh, the hostess, who's my neighbor, you know, she, uh, of course, I'm the chef. So she, she tends to defer to, to my judgment on a lot of things. But she wanted to sort of, um, separate out the tasks. So some people would make this, some people would make that. And uh, I'm going to be real stingy on, on uh, the things that I want to make. Like I don't want a lot of other people making the desserts or some of the real critical side dishes like the mashed potatoes or, or the stuffing um, because I want it to be really great. And so those I'm going to definitely going to pull those into my wheelhouse to make sure that they taste great. But for let's just say for desserts, I mean it's pretty darn typical to have pumpkin pie. Um, also, it seems like cheesecake is pretty big. And in my house, there was always a thing called a chocolate roll, and this is a flourless chocolate cake. And for those of you that have uh, my cookbook, uh, the Harvest Eating Cookbook, which by the way you can get on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, I'm actually out of them in the warehouse, completely sold out, which is a good thing. But there's a recipe in there for a flourless chocolate cake. And the reason I want to talk about this a little at length is um, you're, you're going to most people are going to just absolutely punish themselves on Thanksgiving. I know I will. I am definitely going to overeat. There's just no no two ways about it. Uh, I love all the Thanksgiving flavors. I'm going to overeat. And then at the end, um, when 
when it's time for dessert, it can be hard to go and, and eat things, you know, like I've, I've been to Thanksgivings where people had like ice cream sundaes and stuff like that, or chocolate, big, thick, you know, triple layer chocolate cake with insidious chocolate icing that's just like pounds and pounds of sugar. Things like that are hard to eat after you've just had all that rich food. But this flourless chocolate cake, on the other hand, um, number one, it's flourless. That means it's, it's pretty darn light. And it's flavored very simply. It's good dark chocolate, eggs, and egg whites. That's all the, uh, the, the majority of the cake is. And then it's flavored with um, chantilly cream. And there you go. There's another, you know, chefy term for uh, cream flavored with a little bit of vanilla and uh, chantilly cream. So you just basically take good organic whipping cream, you whip it up with a little uh, high-quality vanilla extract, and then you layer your flourless chocolate cake with that cream. And that is just, first of all, you use good dark chocolate, so it's got that, you know, it's not that lousy Nestle milk chocolate. I mean, that, folks, that stuff's not chocolate. Come on now. Real chocolate, something. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, it's, it's, that's not chocolate. So you get a good dark chocolate and then some really good organic cream. And you've got, you've got a cake that uh, has very few ingredients, chocolate, eggs, sugar, vanilla, and cream. What is that, like five ingredients? And that's all, and maybe a little powdered sugar on top. But that cake, every time I make it, and growing up we had it on every holiday and every my mom made it for every birthday, um, that stuff – will be the first thing to go because once somebody tries that, man, it, it goes. And we've got a neighbor next door. He's, he's a real close friend of mine. He's also a giant slob. I mean, he will he will eat gallons of ice cream, you know, sitting in his chair, or he'll eat an entire apple pie. So I know how he feels about my chocolate, my flourless chocolate cakes. My mother asked me, are, are you going to make the chocolate cake? And I'm like, you know what? The heck with – I'm not bringing a chocolate cake over there because Norm's going to eat the whole damn <laughs> we'll make it but we're not bringing that over so we're not going to tell sandy about that uh, oh. that's a fabulous one you can get that recipe uh, on harvesteating.com and i'll try to send you a link so you can put it in the show notes that would be great because i know people are going to want to try to make that it's one a, it's a good cake um, and it's also it's in my cookbook for those of you that have that so that's one that i think is wonderful on thanksgiving another one is cheesecake and that's kind of a tradition that sort of came from my wife's side of the family. And her mom makes a cheesecake, and it's a pretty simple cheesecake, you know, a real um, graham cracker crust. And, folks, you can go and buy a graham cracker crust, excuse me, in the store. When you did that 10 or 12 years ago, you know, it was graham crackers, butter, sugar, you know, things like that. Now when you go buy it, there's 62 things in the ingredient list. So you don't want to eat that kind of garbage. You go and get some um, graham crackers, and sure, there's probably going to be 60 things in, in the graham crackers, so you don't need to, to add a bunch of stuff. It's butter, sugar, ground-up graham crackers. Try to buy organic ones if they exist or, or a good um, brand. But making your own graham cracker crust is a, is a cinch. You put, that, you put melted butter, crushed graham crackers, a little bit of sugar in a bowl, mash it up well, put it into your pie plate, and then pre-bake that in the oven. It's it's called like a blind baking. Put that in there and um, cook that for about 12 minutes at 325. Now you make a cream cheese. You can follow 
uh, I mean, a, you know, a, a cheesecake batter. Follow the instructions for that. Put it in there. And when you cook cheesecake, you want to cook cheesecake uh, in what's called a, a bain-marie, which is a water bath. And uh, some folks make the mistake of they, they use um, one of those springform pans, you know, where they have a little buckle on the outside. So it, it, that's what you want to do for for a cheesecake, actually not a, not a pie plate like I just said. You're going to use a springform pan, a little thing. It's about two and a half inches tall. But you can't pop a springform pan into a water bath because it's not waterproof. So if you're doing that, you have to put foil on the outside of the springform pan. Otherwise, you're just going to have a soggy mess. So keep that in mind, but try to cook your cheesecake in a water bath, and that's going to help to avoid the cracking on top because people get all freaked out. Oh, my God, my cheesecake, there's a crack in it. Now, if you develop the crack in it, it's no big deal because you're going to do what my mother-in-law does when she makes her cheesecake. Once it comes out of the oven, then she gets sour cream. And I said sour cream, not low-fat or fat-free sour cream. That is not sour cream. So get the real deal. And you'll take that and you'll spread about a good quarter-inch layer of cold sour cream right on top of your cheesecake. That's going to cover up any cracks. That's going to go back in the oven for, I think it's about 15 to 20 minutes. And what that oven time does to that sour cream, it, it's kind of magical because it it uh, it makes it really dense and not, I wouldn't say hard, but it gives it like a, like a texture. And... That makes a spectacular cheesecake. Except I have a different way that they can fix their cracked cheesecake. Take your cracked cheesecake and let it cool so it's nice and ready to go. Pack it up really nice and overnight it to Jack Spirico. Because <laughs> I'll eat all your cracked cheesecakes you guys want to send me. I'm with you, man. Back- <laughs> but that is cool. I never heard of that. Sour cream on a cheesecake at the end. Yeah, you, you cook it down and it gets really... It's wonderful, um, and of course you can you can do fruit and stuff. But um, again, I think uh, in this case, after a big heavy meal, a bunch of sugary fruit probably isn't the best thing. But some good um, real real fat, nice cream cheese, nice sour cream, good ingredient. That's another uh, great dessert. The other thing that you can do uh, for Thanksgiving for a dessert, which I find wonderful, and, and a lot of people grow apples and store apples. We have apples here in our pantry, probably 20, 40 pounds or so right now, and they're called Gold Rush. An equivalent would be like a Granny Smith, a hard apple, a tart apple, one that's got a pretty tough skin. Making roasted apples or even stuffed apples is a wonderful Thanksgiving dessert. And again, for those of you that are worried about everything coming out, you know, at the proper time and all that, these can be made, you know, in the morning. They can be made the day before and warmed up. But uh, two ways to go about it, and this is probably the best way. Uh, take your Granny Smith apples, and you want to make sure, number one, that these things stand up straight. Some apples are a little weird. They're going to want to lay over on their side. Try to um, leave those for doing something else. Find ones that stand up straight. If you have to take a knife and just cut off a little of the bottom to make it stand up, no big deal. Then you're going to take a paring knife, and you're going to be very careful, and you're going to stab it in the top of your apple on an angle and and make a a circle. Then take a melon baller or a grapefruit spoon or even, um, what do you call those things, measuring spoons. Sometimes those little measuring spoons are somewhat sharp. And you're going to want to hollow out the inside of the apple. But don't go crazy. Don't hollow it out so that the sides of it are, you know, paper thin because then it's going to fall apart. You want a lot of 
you know, sidewall on your, on your apple. Then you're going to make a stuffing like organic granola, golden raisins, a little bit of heavy cream, a little bit of cinnamon, melted butter. Mix all that stuff up. Touch of sugar. And again, most American desserts are way, way crazy over the top with sugar. So if you're going to sweeten this stuffing, don't do a lot of sweetness because the, the apple's got some sweetness. What I would prefer is either a little raw honey or maybe a teaspoon of uh, real maple syrup again. You only want a hint of sweetness. Take that stuffing, put it into the apple, and definitely, once it's stuffed in there, definitely fill it up um, slowly with a little bit of organic heavy cream. Let's say you got 12 guests, do 12 apples like that, and you can prep those two days ahead of time, stuffing and all, cover them up with plastic wrap, put them in the refrigerator, and then you can bake them the day of. No problem. But when that thing comes out hot and you can, and you let it, and you don't want it like ripping hot, but you cook them, then they're going to sit, you know, on your table. Someone can scoop up an apple, put it in a bowl. It's going to be a little firm, but a little soft, have all that wonderful uh, stuffing in there. And it's just a great, great way to uh, enjoy, you know, a seasonal fruit with Thanksgiving. I mean, nobody that I've made those stuffed apples for has, has ever done anything but just ask for another one. And then we're not making crust. We don't have all of that extra heavy stuff like you're talking about, the heavy meal. And, folks, that is so easy to do that when I was a kid, especially this time of year in Pennsylvania where there were apples everywhere, we used to make those all the time, like on the fly. Like, you know what, let's make some, you know, let's make some apples. Uh, and it's a great treat. And, like again, unless you just don't like apples, I don't know anybody that wouldn't really enjoy eating that. Right. Right. No, that's, uh, again, yeah, real simple. And I'll, I'll, um, I'll give you one more quick sort of dessert idea, and then we'll, we'll, we'll try to switch gears to some more appetizers. But, again, with apples, making um, sort of an, an apple compote can be a really terrific thing to do. And what you do is let's just take the apples that we talked about. They need to be cored and peeled, put into a pot with a little bit of water, and then spiced up a teeny bit of clove, some ginger, maybe a little nutmeg, if you like cinnamon, a little cinnamon, and cook that slowly on the on the stove until they're uh, fork tender. Let them cool off, mash them up, put them in uh, a bowl. And again, you want this, you don't want to serve that cold because things that are cold tend to lack flavor. Like good cheese is always served, you know, warm at room temperature. That way you can taste everything. So you want to make sure that this apple compote is at least, you know, out of the refrigerator for a little bit, somewhat warm. And then you can take cream again and warm it up on the stove and drizzle a little bit of cream right on top of that in a bowl. It is wonderful. I mean, it's such a refreshing type of dish, and it's something that people, again, they're just used to overly sugared cakes and, and things like that. A nice sort of mashed apple that's spiced up with some of that holiday spice, a little bit of rich, heavy cream on top, Wonderful, really great dessert. And, and I'm going to jump in here, and I'm going to give my one recipe this year that's a little bit different. And I'm going to take this time to do it because it could be an appetizer, it could be on the table with the meal, and it could be a dessert. Uh, I decided to experiment with pumpkin beer bread this year. And I grew these styrian holeless pumpkins, so the seeds have no holes. And I cut one of the pumpkins up and steamed it so I could turn it into pumpkin mash. And it turned out there was right at a half a cup of uh, pumpkin seeds. And right at two cups of pumpkin mash out of one of these little pumpkins. So a cup of pumpkin mash is about what you put in a, a loaf of pumpkin bread. 
So basic beer red recipe, guys, uh, three cups of flour. I use half wheat, half white. You can use all white if you want to make this lighter. And uh, that goes into a bowl with about a tablespoon of baking powder. And, uh, you know, from, from there, basically, if you're doing just beer bread, uh, you lose a little salt, a little sugar, maybe a teaspoon of each. Add your beer, one, cap, one can of beer, 12 ounces. Mix it up, bake it at 350 for an hour. The variation here, add about a quarter cup of uh, brown sugar. Add one half, get a nutmeg, not the fake nutmeg crap, like just a, a whole nutmeg and a small grater and grate about one half of a nutmeg. Uh, I don't know how much cinnamon I did it by eye. It was probably three teaspoons, right around a tablespoon of cinnamon. Uh, and then a quarter cup of pumpkin seeds. Throw that in your bread. And unlike when I did it, when you do this, the regular beer bread, you bake it at 350 for an hour. It needs about an hour 20 because that pumpkin is a lot moister uh, in some way. So the bread's going to be really moist. But if you pull it out at an hour, the center is just not done yet. And so if you do about an hour 20 with that, and again, it's just basically the basic beer bread recipe I've done 100 times for you guys. A cup of pumpkin mash and a quarter cup of pumpkin seeds, a quarter cup of brown sugar, uh, some cinnamon and some nutmeg, and it was pretty fabulous. We had enough to make two, so I did one as a test run, and uh, it's gone. And uh, we'll do one on Thanksgiving Day. So there's my little contribution, Keith. Wow, that, that's neat. It almost, um, it kind of, I was thinking right away. Wow, I wonder what kind of beer, man. You could do like a stout in that. That would be pretty cool. But you could do a stout. You could do, you know, a good old fashioned pumpkin ale that's already got a lot of the nutmeg stuff going on in it. Um, when I did it, uh, just because I wanted to know. What I was getting from the ingredients versus the beer the first time, I used just like a, a Michelob Ultra, like a very plain beer. Uh, but I'll probably up it to something a little bit more oof, to it uh, for the one we do on Thanksgiving Day. Yeah, that's neat, especially with the with the pumpkin ale. It almost reminds me. You ever see those sort of uh, New England brown breads? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of sort of what I was going for. It's kind of like a sweet bread, but it's not a cake. Right, not a cake. Yeah, that would, that would be neat as well. Um, now let's uh, let's see if we can come up with a couple of more um, appetizers. And in my family, the the appetizer generally there was always a, a cheese tray with good cheeses out. And you know it's hard to call that an appetizer. But the other thing is my mom would make um, turkey soup. So that was sort of our our big tradition was always turkey soup. And she did that. She would always use that nasty old turkey neck. And that of course was going to make the best soup. And she, again, she would have rutabaga in there, turnip, um, and it would have a really rich turkey flavor. She'd put egg noodles in it. And we always had a little bowl of um, turkey soup. And then there there were, um, you know, things like cheese and crackers. And she also had these sweet rolls that she would make. And, and it was basically kind of a crescent-shaped roll. And, and if those of you that are in the Northeast, you know, New Bedford around there in Massachusetts, you know, there's a big Portuguese population, and the Portuguese are kind of famous for their sweet rolls. And this had kind of had that eggy, brioche sort of sweet roll thing going on. And those were just unbelievable. Uh, as a matter of fact, now that she's here, I'm going to put the old woman to work and tell her to make those sweet rolls because those are tremendous. And, and I can remember just using straight-up butter and uh, on those sweet rolls or a little bit of chunk of good cheese in there and that was was really great for an appetizer but you know honestly um things like spinach and artichoke dip that that's the type of stuff that people um go to but i find that to be kind of heavy and you know my personal thought is is to save yourself for the real meal 
and only to, to kind of eat really light stuff. Another, a good uh, appetizer, in my opinion, would be um, you take apples and shred up apples, uh, sprouts, some really light type of uh, field greens, shredded carrots, and, and just a very light-tasting vinaigrette. Just a small tossed salad is also a wonderful thing, you know, before a big heavy meal. But uh, I don't think I can readily endorse, you know, too many um, – you know, appetizers myself. To me, it's always been like, I'm the cook, right? So I want to be in the kitchen doing stuff. And I want, as people are coming over before we actually sit down to eat, I want them the hell out of the kitchen, right? So the appetizers are designed to keep them away from me. That's, that's the biggest. And I know it sounds like, you know, I'm kind of being a jerker with all, but you're in a kitchen, you've got all this stuff going on. You're making 10 different things to please 10 different people. You got a giant turkey you're taking out of the oven. Everything's hot. Uh, and the last thing you need is tons of people in the kitchen with you looking at what you're doing, asking you if they can have a bite of something. So I kind of put that out there like that's the that's the line thou shalt not cross unless you're asked to. You can you can come in the kitchen with me after dinner to clean, yeah. go on cooking, go over there. And I put stuff out like easy stuff like black olives. Um, my grandmother, I guess, had me got me onto this because she was put like a, a thing out with some cheese, like you're saying, some black olives and those little sweet gherkins. Yeah. And that usually somebody, everybody likes one of those things, you know, and it kind of keeps them out there. But you don't need to be eating too much as an appetizer when you're about to slam down about 7,200 calories. <laughs> yeah, that, that's for sure, because you'll, uh, you'll, you're going to be hurting anyway. And if you really, you know, if you start eating early and you're eating nibble on appetizers and all that, then you're, you're going to be crushed after dinner. So that's why something light, little, you know, a little soup, maybe a, a salad and, and picking on some little things is probably the way to go. Um, Jack? I think resting is cool, too. Like, there's a reason football's on all day. So, like, when you're done with dinner, like, go watch football, have a beer, kick back for, like, an hour, and then have dessert. You know? Don't shove it right in afterward if you don't have to. That's, that's what we do. We, we tend to relax, start um, a little bit of the cleanup, you know, get, get the table, you know, broken down. That way dessert has a place to go. And, uh, but there's definitely at least an hour. All right, so um, we had one, or actually two people ask about vegetarian alternatives. And, uh, you know, that's a hard one for me because I'm pretty paleo and a pretty big meat eater, and it's hard for me to see Thanksgiving with anything other than a, a turkey on the table and possibly the turkey stuffed with a ham and then, you know, maybe a, maybe a cow at the head of the table instead of dad to, to be nibbled on through the rest of the night. Uh, but what say you? Do you have some ideas for maybe how – a person can, you know, run a really nice vegetarian Thanksgiving or have stuff for the vegetarian guests. Because I think that's important that we do respect people's decisions. I'm being a little funny here, but if I have somebody come over to my house as a vegetarian, I try to accommodate them uh, without going to something like a tofer turkey or whatever the hell they call those things, because that just doesn't look good. Yeah, tofurkey, that stuff is rough, man. <laughs> I think it's like dog food, but... <laughs> I believe it, so I guess we can't knock it too much. But no, all jokes aside, um, yeah, you got to remember that there's there's um, super legitimate reasons for people to be vegetarians. And while I'm not one, there's oftentimes that uh, I feel like I could be. And, and I go in spurts eating a lot of meat and then um, also eating a lot of uh, fresh live food, including juicing. And uh, lately we've been on a really big kick of doing uh, main course salads for dinner and uh, that have a lot of different textures and flavors in there. But sure, I mean, think about how many millions of, of vegetarians are out there that don't want the turkey, 
but they still want a festive meal. And uh, what I would suggest is, you know, again, harvest eating is about seasonal cooking with local foods. So, you know, we're we're talking about Thanksgiving. So there's a lot of different directions you could go, but I would my first instinct is to um, take out these seasonal ingredients that we've talked some about, you know, parsnips, rutabagas, potatoes, um, squash, what have you, and start thinking about crafting those in other ways. Now, again, uh, I'm not going to suggest that you take those things and mold them into a turkey-looking thing and bake it. I mean, let's uh, let's just set aside the turkey and and talk about some great sort of fall-inspired dishes. And um, right away, the thing that came to mind is um, pasta. Now, pasta is super versatile. You can do a lot with with pasta. Um, and what I would do is I'm thinking of a pasta dish that, number one, does not have any red sauce, even though I, I sell my own brand of, of, of uh, red sauce. This would be one that, you know, would be kind of called like a naked sauce. But let's take butternut squash, for instance. They're, they're all over the markets. They store really well. And, and uh, for those of you, you know, hardcore preppers out there, we, we did a little test and we bought about seven months ago, we bought a butternut squash. And we left that thing sit on our counter that entire time, my wife and I, to see what would happen to it. And it definitely got a little funny looking, but we cooked it, and it was fine. So th- these are great um, things to grow if you're blessed enough to have some in your garden or you have access to them. It's a perfect fall item. It stores through the winter well, and it tastes great. So let's take that butternut squash, for instance. And this is going to be probably one of the easiest squashes to what I call harvest the flesh from. An acorn squash, totally different animal. It's got those ridges in there. And in order to uh, get that out of there, it's more difficult. So I would use a butternut squash and get um, maybe, let's just, we'll talk about a batch that, that could make for five people. So if you can harvest like five cups of diced um, butternut squash, uh, and you want this to be in about the size, no bigger than a small grape or maybe even like a blueberry, just small cubes. So you've got this uh, butternut squash. So what we're going to do is um, first we're going to cook some pasta. Now, you can go any different direction here, but because this is going to have sort of a sauce component, I'm going to want a little bit of a, a wide noodle, um, maybe a fettuccine, um, uh, maybe a tagliatelle, something like that, or even a flat noodle farfalle, which is the uh, bow ties. So cook some of those off. If you can use whole wheat, even better. The vegetarians, they know about um, getting more um, that type of stuff in their diet. So cook your pasta off ahead of time. Make sure it's rinsed off so it's not going to stick together. Set that aside. Take a, a pretty good, like a Dutch oven. Put it over some heat. Get some good extra virgin olive oil down in there. And then you're going to want to start building flavor. Now, Whenever you're cooking vegetarian, um, you're not going to have the components that the meat bring, which is that sort of umami, the soy sauce, mushroom, meaty type factor. You don't have that. So you've got you've to make it up with things that are flavorful, things that build layers of flavor. And that's going to be uh, generally vegetables, things like onions and garlic. So let's take um, a red onion. Or a shallot, either two, either one. Um, either one of those is going to be fine. And let's mince it up super fine. We don't want big chunks of onion. I mean, just go through with your knife over and over, or you can even grate it. But have really fine uh, minced up either red onion or shallot. 
So you're going to throw that down into that uh, olive oil. Be generous with the olive oil. Don't worry about, you know, don't don't give me this two tablespoon garbage. You know, put a, glugs in there. Glug, 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 glug. Let the bottom of the pan get some olive oil in it. Put in about a cup of minced up either red onion or shallot. And then, again, thinking about flavor, you want to build flavor. Garlic is incredible for building flavor. You're not going to have any meat in here, so you want flavor. Three or four large garlic cloves minced up. Leave those off for a side. Sweat the onions for two to three minutes, and then put in the garlic cloves. Cook those for 30 seconds, and then all of that butternut squash that you diced up. And this is why I suggest using a sauce, uh, I mean a, a Dutch oven, something that's got a really large amount of real estate in it. You don't want to use a little teeny skillet and dump all of this stuff on top of itself because then you're going to be steaming these butternut squash. You always want, you almost want to have enough room in the bottom of the pan for them to be in a single layer or close to it. So put them in there, stir them around. That way they get some of the um, aromatics, the onions and the garlic and the olive oil on top of them. Season them with salt and pepper and then turn the heat down and you want it to be about a medium low, and leave those things in contact with the bottom of that pan for about 12 minutes. And again, folks, 12 minutes is my off-the-cuff estimate. You need to be cooking and watching it. If it's black on the bottom, after six minutes, you're going to have to uh, move on. If it hasn't showed any color showing up, maybe it needs to be 18 minutes. Whatever it is, you want those things to caramelize. You want them to start cooking um, and get some good dark color. You only need to stir them one time. So they're in the bottom of the pan. They start to get color. Stir them one time, and then you're going to take um, your pasta. And I'm assuming that this vegetarian meal um, is not a vegan meal. So a little bit of cream or a little bit of butter is not going to bother um, you for this dish. So what I would do is take your pasta, cooked pasta, throw it down on top of the ingredients that are already in this pot, and then I would add a little bit of, probably I would go with an organic cream. Um, so you put in a little organic cream and a little vegetable broth. And nowadays you can buy pretty great boxed vegetable broths that are organic. Um, maybe a quarter cup of vegetable broth, one cup of cream, a pat or two of butter, and a little bit of Parmesan or freshly grated Romano cheese. Toss that in there. Um, toss it together and then put a cover on it. And again, low heat. What you want to do is reheat the pasta and the liquids in there and the heat are going to reheat the pasta. Then open it up. And again, we're thinking about seasonality, either something great like fresh um, thyme or fresh sage or even rosemary minced up fine, tossed in there, makes an incredible pasta. And what happens is the cream tends to thicken up and it just clings to the noodles. And then you've got that sort of pan-roasted butternut squash, a little bit of that cheese in there, some of the fresh sage. It makes a really festive pasta dish. And I've made that for folks quite a few times, and they really dig that. Another, another sort of alternative would be to add Swiss chard, which is an incredible ingredient. So you take some Swiss chard, First of all, it's got to be cleaned really, really well because that stuff can be sandy and that can ruin your meal in a heartbeat if you don't rinse it and you've got grit in your food. So make sure your Swiss chard is very well washed and um, mince, uh, not mince it, but uh, cut it up into julienne or, or uh, strips. And then you can take that and when your butternut squash is roasting in the pan, throw some of that um, Swiss chard on top of it 
and let that start to wilt down, then continue with the recipe. So now you've got a couple of really very fall-inspired um, ingredients, some cold greens, some Swiss chard, some butternut squash, and then some tasty fat like butter and cream, a little Parmesan cheese for salt, that little punch from the fresh herbs. You have got an incredible pasta dish that um, most vegetarians, not vegans, but most vegetarians are going to kind of flip their lid over. So that's one that I would like for. I'd eat that, man. I'll tell you, I wouldn't hesitate at all. I'm going to have some meat to go with it, but that sounds pretty daggone good. Um, I would also kind of add, you mentioned one thing when you're talking about meat and the different meat flavors. One of the things was you said was mushrooming, and I think a lot can be done to give some of what's missing to a lot of vegetarian meals by adding mushrooms to them. And my two favorites are fresh portobellos, and for some reason I actually like to use dried shiitake more than fresh shiitakes. Uh, maybe just because I have so many of them, uh, but they just seem to work better when you're cooking things and you want to bring a flavor to it. And I find that like if you do it right and subtle, even people that think they don't like mushrooms will enjoy the background of the flavor. They don't know what's there. I do stews all the time, and I basically take my shiitakes and I kind of crumble them even more so they're not a powder but crumbled pretty fine, and I add that to the stew. I do different soups with that. Now, this isn't vegetarian, but... My wife always says it's so good, and if she knew those mushrooms are in there, she'd swear to God, oh, I can taste it, it's terrible. So maybe that's part of why I like the dehydrated shiitakes, too. I can stealth add them, but they do add that kind of, like I've had fajitas made, ve vegetarian fajitas made with uh, portobello strips, and i got to admit it's pretty daggone good. No, you're, you're definitely right, and, and uh, your point about using the, the mushrooms um, to bring that sort of meat quality uh, we in the restaurant business would do that all the time with uh, dried shiitake and also dried porcini, which are sort of an Italian kind of mushroom. And we would take those things and we would grind them up into a powder and then use that in all types, like that pasta dish. You sprinkle in some porcini powder or even a stew, like a beef stew or a vegetable stew. You sprinkle in that porcini powder or you put it in eggs, make an omelet with it. It really, it, particularly the dried ones, like you mentioned, a lot more than the fresh, it brings a really kind of meaty punch to it. So th those are, um, that's amazing. A very astute argument, Jack. I like that. Yeah, and you use the porcinis in your uh, northern Italian, yeah. right? Your, your seasoning. Yeah, those little dehydrated porcini mushrooms in there. Um, when those things hit some hot fat or, um, you know, in a soup, it definitely brings quite a bit of flavor. Yeah, that stuff, that mushroom powder, that stuff is the bomb. <laughs> cool, man. Well, hey, I want to make sure that people know, like, you've got a podcast where you talk about this kind of thing all the time, right? Yeah, the Harvest Eating Podcast. We, uh, we're we catching up to you, Jack. We just passed 104 episodes. Awesome. With, with sick days and vacations that you're going to take, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be passing you pretty soon. Awesome, awesome. So what's your, what, how often are you doing them? Now? You know what? We've actually started doing uh, more of them. We're probably doing, uh, I'd say, three to four a month, something like that. Okay, cool. Yeah, those are, you know, you can listen to those right on the webpage at harvesteating.com. Of course, they're in iTunes and all of that. Um, so that's, uh, that's cool. And, and I definitely share a lot of listeners with you, your audience. Those of you out there that are listening to my show, I really appreciate it. And uh, it, it seems like the... Uh, the TSP audience, they're, they're way up there with gardening and cooking. I mean, just a super, uh, I mean, they speak my language totally, which is great. So, yeah, the Harvesting Podcast also, 
I wanted to mention that we're doing a couple of um, uh, sales this year. A lot of people have been buying the, the spices and olive oils and all the stuff that we sell. So I've got two sales that I'll I'll plug here um, for those of you that maybe have been waiting to order something. And uh, when you're making an order, only one of these kind of coupon codes will work at a time. Both of them don't work. But any any order over $65, which is pretty easy to get to, free. Or if it's under $65 and you want 50% off, you can use the uh, coupon code TSP. Um, that will do it and give you uh, 15% off your order. So I wanted to mention that. But um, Wait, did you say there were two there? Because what I heard was TSP for orders over 65 for 15% off. Uh, no, uh, I, I may have confused you. For, um, for, for the... Uh, for free shipping, any order over $65, okay. um, you just use a coupon code. Actually, you don't need a coupon code. If it's over $65, the system will automatically give you free shipping. Free shipping, okay. If you want a, let's say you have a $30 order, you want 15% off, just use a code TSP. Okay, so we've got automatic free shipping on all orders over 65 or capital O, capital R, 15% off on all orders under $65. Right. With coupon code TSP. Okay, I just want to make sure everybody got that. I got to tell you, you made a change to the packaging on your seasoning, which is awesome. You've gone to the tin cans, and my wife is very happy with you for this because I'm lazy with the Ziploc bags you used to use, and I have this little drawer that I keep all my stuff in for cooking, and I would often put those bags back in there with the Ziploc thing not quite closed, and she'd end up cleaning extra seasoning out of the bottom of the thing. Uh, so I think the, the change in the packaging, and it makes it easier to use, too, because you can open it, grab a pinch, and I'm always talking about your seasoning. And, yeah, you're a sponsor, but I was doting on that long before you became a sponsor, and I use it all the time. Last night I had people over. I did grilled chicken. I used your grilled chicken seasoning. And uh, my only addition to that was I added a little paprika at the end because it helped crisp the skin of the chicken a little bit and caramelize it. And it was uh, it was well received. We had four kids. Um, three of them were under five. And uh, I think they ate more chicken than the adults. Wow, yeah. The, the spices are really cool. But when we started out, I, I really access to them. So we had these you know cheapo bags. I didn't really think anybody would order them, but... They got popular enough to warrant, you know, spending the money on the tin can. So yeah, they're uh, they're great. We, um, you know, it's something that I use every day in the kitchen, and it's funny. I've uh, I've sold various products throughout my chefing career, but those things have the highest reorder rate. I mean, it's funny. You see the order. There's always new orders, but so many of the people that order them come back and order more. As a matter of fact, a TSP listener. Uh, named Wayne out in Las Vegas just uh, reordered. I mean, he's probably ordered four or five times. Didn't you tell me somebody like called you up and special ordered like a gallon or something of your uh, Montreal steak? Oh, uh, twenty pounds. <laughs> That's right, because I couldn't get any after that. You were cleaned out. I remember that now. Um, it's good stuff, folks. I'm not trying to turn it into an infomercial or anything. I'm just telling you that, like, when it comes to cooking. The seasonings, the flavorings, the herbs is so big a part of it. And the reason I keep buying from from Chef Keith isn't just because he's my sponsor. It's because if I go to the store and buy any Montreal steak seasoning, it ain't the same. I I, I told you one time you should change the name of that because it makes me think of McCormick, and it it ain't McCormick, man. It's it's fabulous. The, The barbecue and the chicken and the northern Italian, those are my four that I mean, they're like go-to things for me. And I... 
I can throw my own stuff together. I like to do it, but man, I know if I need to just get some chicken on the grill and I throw that grilled chicken seasoning on there, it's going to be fabulous. Yeah. So well done, dude. Great. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, that's that's really um, the main main gig for me. Is uh, definitely would love some some more listeners of the podcast, and you got the spices. But overall, I just want people to know that uh, this holiday meal doesn't have to be you know as stressful as people make it, and it's really about Following some simple instructions on cooking the turkey, um, having some great flavorful sides, some nice desserts. But let's face it, it's all about tradition and family. And you never know. Like my mom, she's 85 years old. And uh, she was sitting at the table last night. And um, we had just completed dinner. We just ate dinner. And she's like, is there anything else to eat? And I thought that was really strange. I said, you're still hungry? And she said, no, I'm dizzy. And she was here a couple of years ago, and she fainted at the table. She has problems with her blood sugar. Other than that, she's very healthy. But the point is, folks, is um, you know your relatives seeing them and spending time around the table is really important. So remember, that's ultimately the uh, the main event is uh, being with your family and, and celebrating uh, what good fortune and health we we still have. So um, I hope everybody has a a terrific holiday. I, I am around, Jack, just to, to let your listeners know. Keith at HarvestEating.com or Facebook.com slash harvest eating to answer any questions right up. I mean, I'll be, uh, my wife gets angry, but on Thanksgiving Day, I'll be texting away, answering people's emails. So if anyone has any questions, needs any help, uh, that's why I'm here. So don't hesitate. Like I said, it is the Super Bowl season for the chef. So uh, we appreciate you uh, helping everybody and appreciate you being here today. And on your thoughts on family, I'm going to add to that, um, you know, this is not a time to try to convince your liberal brother-in-law from Massachusetts that he's wrong for voting for Obama. It won't go well, especially if you've had a, uh, a few bottles of uh, Beaujolais Nouveau or something like that into you before you start doing, or, or worse yet, maybe a good scotch. Um, let it be, you know, and the family members seem sometimes, in some families, uh, to always try to take it there, and don't go there with them. Enjoy it. Talk about food. Talk about football. It's okay to argue about football. People get over that pretty quick. Um, but just enjoy each other. Be there for each other. Um, tomorrow we are going to have the uh, the annual Thanksgiving special where I talk about uh, kind of the untold genesis of Thanksgiving and what it means to us as preppers. And uh, we'll be off, of course, Thursday for Thanksgiving, folks. And we'll be back on Friday. I've got a show for you already recorded for Friday that's a pretty interesting show about building resiliency in our children. Uh, with that, again, Keith, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for being such a great supporter of the community uh, and the show and being such a good friend. Well, uh, same to you, Jack. I appreciate your audience and, and what you're doing. And um, I'm a avid listener. As a matter of fact, I'm three days behind. So when I'm, when I'm down here, I'm going to go uh, drive and listen to some shows and go shopping. So everybody have a happy Thanksgiving. And, Jack, I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirito today along with Chef Keith Snow, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution.